Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I am Eldon Taylor, at least I was last time I looked in the mirror, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. And here, smiling at me across the studio table, is the lovely lady, Ravinder. So say hello to everyone, Rav. Share your special insight for the day. And and please tell everyone how they can learn more about our show. You know, let's have some of that exuberance that you always get across the airwaves. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. And you better be Eldon Taylor or I'm in trouble. That's one heck of a robot. Um, yeah, that would be rather scary. Um, yep, it's a beautiful day here in Spokane. We've got gorgeous blue skies yet again. It's getting cold, but... As long as the sun is shining, provocative enlightenment. To get more information about us, you can visit our website um, where we have archives from all of our shows going back 13, 15 years. I'm losing track now. I should go back and count. Um, So, yeah, you can play all of those shows, and it's a great way to get educated without actually having to read all of the books of the guests that, you know, we have been interviewing so uh yeah it's a great way to speed up your education get on track open up your mind you know broaden those um those viewpoints uh, we can all do with learning more so yeah you can go to our website and we also have a facebook page so simply search for provocative enlightenment radio and you'll find us there and if there's any information that is given over provided by our guest on the air, you know, any special orals or any other, you know, pertinent information like that, I will make sure to post it right there. So that is the Facebook page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. All right. In this week's spotlight, I want to discuss the notion of success. What exactly is success to you? Webster defines success this way, quote, the accomplishment of an aim or a purpose, close quote. Well, then according to Webster, success is no more nor no less than what an individual decides when they set a goal and achieve it. Many people today generally think of success in terms of financial rewards. We may well recognize the success of a young athlete who wins a ball game or a child who overcomes their fear of sleeping alone and so forth. But still we hang on to the idea that adult success is measured by financial gain. I recently spoke to a young man about his own opinion of success. He had done well in school, graduating with honors. His work with the elderly had been recognized, but upon graduating, he found that in this COVID environment, he could not find work. In his mind, he had failed. He had student loans and no money to buy groceries, let alone make payments on his debt. 
he was forced to move home and live with his parents. When I asked him, what was the most rewarding thing in his life? What, 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 what had he done that had been the most rewarding thing in his life? After some hesitation, he admitted that it was volunteering aid to help out with senior citizens unable to care for themselves. There is a saying in business and life, do what you love and the money will follow. I'm not about to say this adage is a truism, but what I will say is this. When you do what you want and do it well, you are experiencing success. Think about that for a moment. If music is your passion, but you earn your living filling orders at some local short order house, you may dislike your employment, but when you sit down to play your music, if you perform your best, you are satisfied and happy. Happy. Let me stress that. For happiness is success. Everyone's ultimate goal in life is to be happy. You can have all the money or power or good looks or what have you and still be very unhappy. It stands the reason that if we all seek happiness, then we find success in being happy. Happiness is our goal. When people tell me they are successful, I always ask, are you happy? In my mind, if your primary goal is happiness, seek it first. Now, that doesn't mean goof off and play away your time, for that will not produce long-term happiness. No, if the guitar is your passion, you will need hours and hours of work and practice before you could ever claim to have done your best. If you desire to have a family and live in a nice neighborhood and put your children through college, then you will have to sacrifice some in order to reach your goal. That said, as long as we are focused on what we seek, most in order to be happy we will find happiness my point if you seek success seek happiness first as albert schweitzer put it quote success is not the key to happiness happiness is the key to success if you love what you are doing you will be successful close quote those are my thoughts what are yours ravinder I think there's quite a bit of food for thought in in that piece. You know, I think about the kid who has graduated and can't get a job and has to go back home. And so he, she, whoever it was, feels like a failure. And it's like, no, that isn't failing because that's just a temporary, you know, this is what we're going through. So perhaps success has more to do with long-term planning because things are going to happen to all of us at some point um there's going to be hiccups it's how you deal with them that can define success um so you know that that is one point and then i suppose for me i suppose when you're thinking about success happiness is is the vital part of it there isn't any point achieving any goal if you're not happy, then you're not successful. It's a it's a waste of time. But I think one of the things that I'm working towards myself is finding success in being happy with who I am, the person I'm choosing to be, um, how I've expressed myself, how I live my life. So I really won't 
know if I've been successful until I'm on my deathbed and I can look back and say, I did my best. I did all right. You know, that is success. I like, I like me. I like myself. I like what I've done. I made mistakes, but I worked to fix them. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's an ongoing kind Excellent. of thing. Excellent point. Our young man, by the way, uh, decided he was going to volunteer while he was waiting for an employment opportunity, and he went back to volunteering. And when I spoke to him, he was very, very happy and entertaining whether he wanted to pursue his career or take the opportunity they were asking him at this retirement home, offering him at the retirement home, to manage uh, some of the care that was in the home. It could have been a paid job. I, I don't think he's going to take that because there's a, a stark difference in how much he would earn over his career, but uh, he is very, very happy doing what he's doing right now. So it comes down once again to um, if it's what really makes you happy, that's where we should be focusing the greatest amount of our energy. We do what we need to do in order to be able to do that. So maybe you work at a grocery store so you can go home and practice um, your voice lessons. You love to sing. Who knows, you know? But there you have it. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Professor Howard Friedman, and we discussed his work and book, Ultimate Price. It's an important read. If you haven't read it, please do so. The idea of valuating people in dollars and cents is uh, most important. Elizabeth wrote, I hate to think about how life is valued and the idea that there is no inherent value disgusts me. Great show. Thanks for the information. Disgusts me as well, Elizabeth. Josephine wrote, loved your show with Professor Friedman. I bought his book, and you're right. It is a disturbing read, but an important one. I had no idea life was so cheap in some cases. Elaine wrote, very thought-provoking show. I'd love to hear more about health insurance, specifically because in this, both hospitals and insurance entities decide together how much they'll make the patient pay or what services they'll provide. Moving on, Aaron wrote, please accept my heartfelt thanks for bringing us the great hour to remind us we are more than we've been told. Well, it's our pleasure. We enjoy this. Do we not, Rev? We do indeed. I mean, I always imagine the opportunity for that roundtable where you brought in all these, you know, brightest people. I mean, as a child, I remember thinking how wonderful it would be to have a Plato and an Aristotle, you know, or maybe a, a, a Bohr or an Einstein and just be able to ask them all the questions you wanted. And basically, that's what our radio show does. We choose who to bring to the show based on the contribution they can give all of us. And we try to pick the brightest among them. All right. Jasmine wrote, thank you very much for your InterTalk products. They have changed and continue to improve my life. And Elle wrote, I've been using self-sabotage InterTalk CDs. It's making a positive difference. I am grateful to you for all your hard work. I am obviously interested in all things, in quotation marks, all things brain now. (laughs) I love it. 
All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show, Practicing Positive Leadership with Professor Kim Cameron. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Kim Cameron is the William Russell Kelly Professor of Management and Organizations in the Ross School of Business and Professor of Higher Education in the School of Education at the University of Michigan. He is a co-founder of the Discipline of Positive Organizational Scholarship, the scientific study of what produces extraordinary performance in organizations and their employees. His research on organizational virtuousness and the development of cultures of abundance has been published in more than 140 academic articles and 15 scholarly books. He received his B.S. and M.S. degrees from Brigham Young University and M.A. and Ph.D.s from Yale University. All right, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Kim Cameron. Thank you, Eldon. It's a delight to be with you. It's a delight to hear your uh, introduction as well to the day. Very <laughs> well, it's very our pleasure. I loved your book. I really loved your book. And, and I want to get into that in some greater detail. But, you know, what I ended up doing was we do a little bit of background work. And then I, you know, I discovered that you're the author of a lot of things. And so I'm going to talk to you about several of your books and a, a much broader part of your work today. But what we like to do on this show, Professor, is learn three things. What is the message? Who is the messenger? And then, of course, how do we use that? To that end, sir, what are you passionate about today and why? So I'm passionate about the things I've written, for sure. I've just finished another book that's uh, building on what you've read. Uh, and what specifically I'm passionate about is this idea of positive activities, positive leadership, positive families, positive organizations, and what it takes to become positive. So what I really mean by that is <clears throat> think, of a, think of a continuum anchored on each side by, on one end, ne- a focus on negative on the other hand, focused on positive, extraordinarily positive. I sometimes refer to that as a deviance continuum. De- negative deviance means problems, difficulties, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the opposite side of happy that you just right. mentioned. The positive end of that continuum is extraordinarily flourishing. Well, as it turns out, almost all organizations, almost all school classes are focused on attempting to avoid or overcome problems, obstacles, difficulties. I mean, think of physical health. Um, 90% of all medical research focuses on trying to get people from being ill to being healthy, or in other words, in the middle of the continuum, an absent of problems, but also an absent of extraordinary, spectacular flourishing. So positively deviant physical health would be Olympic fitness levels, the ability to do 400 push-ups, you know, or 5% body fat for men. 
There's a little research on that, but for the most part, 90% of all medical research focuses on how to get us away from the negative disease problem uh, end of the, of the continuum to a normal, healthy, absent illness state. Psychologically, it's very similar. 95% of all psychological research focuses on depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, PSTD, suicidal thoughts, and so on. As soon as we're absent those, that is, normal health is fine. Psychologically, I'm doing fine. Well-being is all right. I'm happy enough. That essentially is where psychology stops. Well, on the other end of the continuum, there is extraordinary, spectacular performance. Physiologically, I've mentioned Psychologically, we refer to that sometimes as a state of flow, where people are, you lose track of time, you lose track of physiological needs. If you put electrodes on your brain, you're using more of your brain capacity than normal. We've all had that experience. Well, how do you get an entire organization into a state of flow, or a team, or just a family, or an individual into a state of flow? Or, in other words, spectacular, extraordinary performance. Organizationally, same thing. Most of the focus, most of the management challenges that people uh, pay most of, atten- most of their attention to are getting uh, organizations to uh, be profitable, be, uh, avoid ethical challenges, satisfy customers. That is, go from, we're not doing so well, we're losing market share, gee whiz, we're laying people off, the COVID has really created a crisis. Financially, things are really tough. Most of the attention of leaders and managers focuses on how do you get out of that situation, and now we're just fine. We're doing fine. That's the middle of the continuum. The right-hand side is spectacular, extraordinary performance. I refer to the right-hand side as a virtuous state. Now, in original Latin and Greek, the word virtuous means the best of the human condition, the highest aspirations human beings have for themselves is a virtuous state. So if the world was virtuous, there would be no poverty, no war, everybody would be well-educated. It's the best of the human condition, the best we can imagine. All right, now that's a long answer, Eldon, to say I'm interested. What really um, gets me out of bed every morning is trying to figure out how to go from more doing fine, thank you very much, to spectacular, extraordinary, or virtuous actions, virtuous activities, virtuous results. That is the gap between fine and extraordinary or spectacular. That's what I'm referring to as positively deviant performance or a positively deviant state. I think we'd all love to experience that positive deviance. Uh, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful goal. That's a, I can't imagine something that um, could give you, you know, greater sense of frustration and at the same time a greater uh, sense of of achievement or a burning fire to just find a new step in doing it. You heard today's spotlight, Professor. What have I got wrong? And moreover, can you be a truly great leader and not love what you do? I, I, I really agree with you, Ellen, that great leaders and great people, successful people, happy people, uh, are good at what they do. The worrisome part of what I think I heard, that is the pursuit of happiness, 
and uh, making sure that success is uh, happiness and happiness is success and so on. The worrisome part of that is that it potentially can lead to selfishness. I'm worried about my happiness. I don't care much about you, but, boy, I want to make sure I'm happy. Or I want to make sure I get what I want or I fulfill my needs and so on. And I think that that's the, that's the potential danger. On the other hand, I don't, I don't think that's what you had in mind, but I would add to your definition of happiness that happiness is a state where you're helping other people flourish at the same time you're meeting your own needs or fulfilling your own potential. So your story of this young man who's volunteering, I would... Um, there's some wonderful research that I'm aware of that essentially says all human beings at their very core, from the time they're tiny infants, have a natural inclination toward virtuous actions. Virtuous actions means generosity, compassion, uh, forgiveness, uh, gratitude, and so on. That is, there's interesting research even from with child, uh, children three months old where they're put in a situation, well, I'll, I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the one study, there are several studies, but one study is as follows. You take children ages three months to eight months. Now, put a child on a caregiver's lap and have the child watch a puppet show for maybe 20 or 30 seconds. So a puppet tries to walk across the stage, tries to climb a hill, or tries to open a box. Then you have two other puppets one of them tries to encourage, support, help. The other tries to hinder, puts a block up, you can't make it up the hill, jumps on the box, you can't open the box. Then, after 20 or 30 seconds, you bring these two puppets out, put it in front of the child, and the child can select whichever puppet he or she wants to play with. That is, which one does he desire and is attracted to? Right. More than 90% of the time, children as young as three months choose the puppet that tries to help rather than tries to hinder. And that's been replicated in various forms multiple times. That is, long before you learn about civil behavior and how to get along with another person, there is an inherent inclination toward virtuousness. Now, uh, there are certain people who would call that evolutionar evolutionarily survival mode. That is, we can't get along and uh, we, we can't survive unless we can get along with each other. And that generally is focused on or dependent on being virtuous toward one another. But the notion of happiness would be fulfilling or having an opportunity to display those basic human attributes, which I refer to as virtuous attributes. That is, I mean, we're kind to each other. We're generous to each other. We're, you know, we're, uh, it's, <laughs> it's called generalized reciprocity. In other words, um, contributing to the welfare of somebody else without expecting a return. That, in fact, is basically at the core of human beings. We help each other out, and that's fulfilling. You now, and I are... We've learned our way out of that, by the way. We get very selfish, and, you know, the economic systems and the social systems really drive that out of us, but that's at the core. I concur, totally. You and I are new to each other, but I call that the warm, fuzzy feeling that's that feeling you get that uh, your life really makes a difference because you've gone to the aid of someone in need and somehow, some way, been able to help that person. 
And for me, uh, you know, that's the definition of true self-esteem. You don't get esteem some other way. You get esteem out of service to others. All right, listen. That's just my opinion. Bingo. I'm You and I are two of a kind. <laughs> well, good. I'll take that. But that's a compliment. Thank you very much. Well, for me, too. Before we dive into your new book, Practicing Positive Leadership, you're the co-author of the book, Making Impossible Possible. Now, this is a story of the Rocky Flats uh, cleanup, the dangerous nuclear weapon plant. Um, Jared Paulus testified before Congress in 1969 that Rocky Flats nearly became America's Chernobyl. And there are very few people that really know the story of what occurred there. It, 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 it seems to me that you made this a case study on leadership. So I, I want to break this down, and I've, and I've got several questions about it. But before we go to break, in about 30 seconds, is it safe there today? It depends on who you ask, but the experts in the Department of Energy say that it is safer. It's cleaner than it was in 1951 when they created the nuclear arsenal, which, on which uh, site they, they manufactured the triggers that went into nuclear weapons with plutonium and uranium, a lot of very, very dangerous materials. They've cleaned that up so that the soil samples are cleaner than when they started this whole project in 1951. Quite an accomplishment. Well, I'll say so. When we get back, I want to pick that up a little bit. But we do have a hard break here, Professor. So uh, we're speaking with Professor Kim Cameron about his work and book, Practicing Positive Leadership. Uh, And I just mentioned his book, Making the Impossible Possible. These are great reads. You're going to you're going to learn a lot from them. And I think whether you're in a leadership role or you're not in your own mind, you you participate in families, you participate in groups, you involved in in hobbies where other people are concerned. And these are skill sets that you're going to want to know about, learn and use. You can learn more about our guest by the I'll get it said by visiting his website at Center for Paws, P-O-S, Center for Paws is one word, dot com. All right, please do, do stay tuned. I'm tongue-tied all of a sudden. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. 
Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Kim Cameron about his work and book, Practicing Positive Leadership. It's a great read. And as I said before the break, whether you're in a role of leadership or not, this is a book that has a lot to offer. I, I, I recommend it to everyone listening. You can learn more about our guest in his book by visiting his website, which is Center for Pause, P-O-S, C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-P-O-S dot com. It's one word, Center for Pause, as in positive dot com. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. As you all know by now, music psychology is a hobby of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So, Professor, you chose God Bless the USA by Lean Greenwood. Please tell us, why is this music important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are? Well, t- thank you, uh, Eldon. I, uh, I ran across this uh, song um, from a friend of mine who just sent it uh, over the web. And it was an interesting um, experience for me because... It's the uh, choir chorus of the Air Force who uh, joined with Lee Greenwood to produce this uh, video, and it's apparently produced in several different locations. These Air Force personnel are all over the world sitting next to a microphone and uh, singing this song, and I just I thought uh, it was very interesting to, to produce the way they produced it. But then, you know, I'm uh, I'm pretty proud to be an American. I think we're in a very interesting position right now with this election. And uh, I, I read an article earlier today by a mother who said her son, uh, who who is supporting a different candidate than she is, has told her that unless she votes the way he wants her to, she's no longer his mother. <laughs> and... Uh, Venom and the animosity and the contention surrounding this election is something I've never seen before in my life. So we're in that sort of a situation, but fundamentally, you know, I'm uh, at the core an American first, and I just think it's a good uh, message in that song. I, I like the music, and I also like the message about, uh, hey, look, you know, it doesn't matter the ethnicity, the gender, the occupation, the socioeconomic status. There's something that's very core that we share together. It's a commitment to a set of values, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, you know, that you mentioned. I totally agree with you, sir, but it is a time in the history of our country when um, there is some trepidation to admitting that you might be proud of America. Uh, (laughs) There are folks out there who want to convince us that this is an evil nation. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not on that camp. <laughs> I, I, I can tell that, or you wouldn't have chosen this song. Uh, nevertheless, I do appreciate, uh, especially coming from Yale, that uh, you would choose this song to air, uh, given 
well, I don't have to go further. You understand what I'm saying. Absolutely. Yeah, Yale has made some interesting decisions of late. You're right about that. Interesting is not necessarily the word I would choose, but I concur. <laughs> All right. You backed yourself in a corner, and I can't let you off the hook. I'm sorry. You're an expert on leadership, and we have two different leadership styles who will cast our vote for tomorrow if we haven't already done a mail-in or some other way of voting. Uh, flesh out for us these two styles, their pluses and minuses, and who they appeal to, Trump versus Biden, Professor. Well, I, I would like to be a political scientist or a clinical psychologist so I could have a more informed answer or perspective on that question. I, um, I, uh, here's, here's just an uh, idiosyncratic personal view. I don't know very many people who resonate with and admire the style of uh, the leadership style of Donald Trump. Um, that is, I, you know, there's some people who characterize this election as uh, you're, either a, you're either for um, Trump or against him. And almost doesn't matter who's running against him. You're going to vote against uh, Donald Trump because of the kind of style he has. So I think what it's come down to is do you like the policies uh, of, the, of the president or not? Those who vote for him, I suspect, are going to say, I'm for what he's for, or I'm for what he's accomplished in the past. Um, there are those who criticize Joe Biden as saying, well, you haven't done anything, and you've been in Congress for 40-whatever, seven years or something. Show us a record. And, uh, uh, you know, sleep, uh, Sleepy Joe or, or a person who hasn't really campaigned very hard and so on. So I, I think we're in a very interesting place where um, voting for persons versus voting for policy may be the difference in this election. Um, anyway, so uh, many things to say about that, but I I, uh, I I think it's a we're in this we're in such a contentious situation, which I don't like at all. I don't like the caustic. Um, divis divisiveness. I don't like the fact that it's very difficult to find common ground in discussions. Um, this article earlier today indicated that most people don't have any friends who are of the opposite political point of view. <laughs> I find that really unfortunate. I have children. We have seven children. Uh, I think that there is a very broad uh, uh, difference across my, the spectrum of my seven children in political, in their political uh, persuasions. I think there's some who are going to be adamant on the left, and some who are going to be adamant on the right, and lots in between. And I'm just hoping it uh, solidifies us rather than tears our family apart. You know, there's something more fundamental, more core, that brings us together. And I hope that happens in the country too. Boy, so do I. But the story you tell about uh, um, the young man or, or, or young lady, I, I don't recall which, who's going to disown his mother, that's not uncommon today. 
Um, If you're on social media, there there are people that are, if you're voting this way, I'm unfriending you. Get away from me right now. It's almost like civil discourse is dissolved. It's 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 forgotten. It's, you know, it's it's a crazy world. Let's leave it at that. All right. I wanted you to comment on their leadership, but I guess you basically summed it up. And maybe I shouldn't say any more. You know, I would, say, I would say style is not necessarily equated with leadership because there are people who approach the issues, the problems, the organizations they lead uh, using a certain kind of style. And I think there's quite a variety of that uh, in that style. So I'm not sure it's the style that will that will predict success. I mean, if somebody said contrast, I don't know, these are old examples, Jack Welch and, say, Bill Gates, those are pretty different kind of people, both of whom are incredibly successful. So it would not be the style as much as the strategy, the behaviors, uh, in some cases the values they pursue, the goals they make clear, the purpose for which they are in business, and so on. Don't know if that makes sense. No, it does perfectly. Jack Welch is held up by many as being one of the greatest uh, because of what he did with GE. But then everybody knows who uh, Bill Gates is, and whether you approve or you disapprove, he, you know, he nevertheless has been uh, a major contributing force in a number of areas, not just in computers, but in healthcare today. So, yes, uh, two great, two great examples. All right. Quickly, back to Rocky Flats. A lot of people died there. I mean, they got sick, they died, uh, and allegedly due to this nuclear plant, who, by the way, the plutonium's half-life radioactivity is 24,000 years. That's right. Which is a little bit scary, you know, when you think about it. Um, there, There was a problem with leadership or the role of leadership at Rocky Flats, as I understand it, that led to all of this. Um, and there's a saying in law enforcement that goes like this. When the fish stinks, it stinks clear to the head. It seems to me that this is as true in organizations as it is anywhere else. So, Professor, what was the breakdown in leadership that led to the disaster and how was it corrected? Well, it's a good question, and I wish there was an easy, quick answer. But I'll tell you as much as I know, or I'll tell you a little bit of what I know, Eldon. It's, uh, you know about this as well. <clears throat> um, Rocky Flats was the place, 16 miles west of Denver, Colorado, about 20 miles east of Boulder, Colorado, where they produced the trigger that went in the nuclear weapons that we produced during the Cold War. The Soviet Union had about 70,000 nuclear weapons. We had about 25,000. But that was enough. I mean, we kept the balance of power stable, and so we were keeping the world safe for democracy. The trigger is a very, very explosive device, of course, and you use the most dangerous materials known to humankind, plutonium and rich uranium and transuratic acid and so on. Well... The goal was produce as many of these triggers as you can, as rapidly as you can, and at the highest level of quality. You don't want any mistakes. You don't want anything to blow up, for heaven's sake. And so during that Cold War period of time, we were uh, essentially in a race. The problem with that is 
while they were producing these nuclear triggers, nobody was monitoring or measuring pollution. Nobody knew whether or not there were plutonium residues, that is dust, being emitted into the air. Nobody knew whether or not the groundwater was being polluted. Nobody knew whether, whether or not soil, soil samples between Rocky Flats and Denver had been polluted. Nobody knew if when the wind from the eastern slope of the Rockies comes across Rocky Flats into Denver, whether or not it was carrying carcinogenic materials. Because if you get a particle of plutonium in your lungs, you will, in fact, will get cancer. So the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, began suing in the federal courts to try to get partial jurisdiction over this site. Now, the trouble is this site is more secure than a maximum security prison. I mean, you, you do not want terrorists to get a hold of any of this material. You don't want any secrets to get out in the Soviet Union, especially during those that period of time. So it was a very, very tight control, and nobody was allowed on site, essentially, and certainly not the EPA. Well, it took 40 years for the EPA to finally get partial jurisdiction over the Rocky Flats nuclear arsenal, and that happened in 1969. So... In 1969, no, 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 sorry, uh, 1989, what am I talking about? 1989, Rocky Flats uh, became subject to the EPA. Right. They walked on site. To the surprise of everyone, they brought with them the FBI. And essentially the FBI said, step back from the equipment. You may not touch anything until you prove to us you're not polluting, until we have some sense of how dangerous this place is. And as it turns out, it was really dangerous, the most dangerous place on the North American continent. In fact, there was a Nightline Ted Koppel special expose uh, entitled The Most Dangerous Buildings in America. Well, what they discovered is um, nobody had been monitoring for 40 years. They had been uh, burying um, barrels full of nitric acid and plutonium. That's how you keep plutonium stable. You put it in nitric acid. But over time, nitric acid eats through things. So you have to recycle it into the production process on an annual basis. Anyway, as soon as they stopped production, that's called a hot shutdown. That means you cannot touch anything. You just drop the plutonium where it is. You just leave the nitric acid where it is. That condition existed for six years. Nothing was done for six years. I mean, these people don't know how to take soil samples or air samples. They know how to make nuclear triggers. And so it costs $700 million a year, by the way, to keep the fans running, keep security guards out there. So for six years times $700 million, <laughs> it was $4 billion, for heaven's sake, being spent for no reason. Nothing was happening. Well, a company, they, well, finally, the U.S. government said we can't. We can't afford this. So nobody in the history of the world has ever cleaned up a nuclear arsenal. Nobody knows what to do. What do you do with this plutonium? You know, tens of thousands of years half-life. So they brought a Blue Ribbon Commission together, the experts in nuclear energy all around the world, brought them together, gave them a commission, which was, give us an estimate. How long is it going to take? What's it going to cost to clean up and close Rocky Flats? 
because George, George Herbert Walker Bush in the early 90s said, all right, the Cold War's over. We're not going to reproduce. Or we're not going to produce nuclear weapons. And that means we're not going to restart Rocky Flats. We're going to close it up. The, est- the original estimate by that Blue Ribbon Commission was it's going to take 60 years, $36 billion. Now, I interviewed the Secretary of Energy and the federal government. He said that was a gross underestimate. We assumed, he said, it would take 200 years and several hundred billions of dollars. But he said you can't send out an RFP, a request for proposal, for, a, for 200 years, for heaven's sake. And you certainly can't ask Congress to give you a blank check. So he said, we picked a lifetime, 70 years. $36 billion, we thought, was just the start. Well, the interesting thing about that book, Making the Impossible Possible, is the organization that got the contract, long story short, finished the job 60 years early in 10 years. $30 billion under budget. Most interestingly to me, 13 times cleaner than required by federal standards. I mean, who do you know that's beat the federal standard by a factor of 13? Right. And so on. Anyway, that's what this, the, the Rocky Flats book is about. It's just a story of, well, how in the world did that happen? So it's a pretty inspiring story for me, especially they've made it now into a wildlife refuge, by the way. It's the only one on the eastern slope of the Rockies where... Never will they ever build houses or apartment buildings or retail shops or anything in there. It's always going to be a place where you can hold Girl Scout camps and family picnics and whatnot. It's an incredible story, but it's also, it, it, it seems to me, you use this very effectively to look at what, what does it take to be the exceptional leader? What, what, what were the lessons of leadership that were gained from it? Um, we, we don't have a lot of time, and, and I really want to turn my attention here, but um, Practicing Positive Leadership, your book, and, and, and the other book, uh, Positive Leadership, both bestsellers, uh, yes. You learned a lot from uh, the leadership role that you saw that took place that was all around Rocky Flats, and that kind of formed what a foundational or a step forward to, to your theories of leadership, Professor, or have I got that wrong? That's correct. I, that's, uh, the Rocky Flats example was certainly one of the things that led me and others towards saying there's something different about these kinds of leaders than we normally hear about. I mean, there are, there are 190,000 books on leadership on Amazon.com. Can you believe it? No. I mean, we don't need one more. We certainly don't need mine. Except that the... No, that's not true. We do need yours. I don't know about <laughs> the others, but keep going, Professor. <laughs> well, the... The contribution, I think, that we have uncovered is the idea that there's a certain set of behaviors, a certain orientation that leaders, if leaders um, adopt, they end up producing extraordinary performance. The Rocky Flat story is one story of extraordinary performance, but there are others where leaders have essentially taken a different kind of view than the standard self-help or style-focused leadership books. So one of the attributes 
of, and there are many, by the way, but one of the attributes, sets of behaviors that leaders who are what I refer to as positive leaders display is, as we started out our conversation, they tend to be virtuous in their activities. They tend to embed in their organizations a sense of generosity and forgiveness and compassion and uh, gratitude and trustworthiness and so on. That is, I became interested in all of this, Eldon, because I was actually studying at the time for about 10 years or so, organizational downsizing. What happens when you downsize, consolidate, retrench an organization? The answer to that question was most organizations deteriorate in performance. If you lay off people, there will be a lack of trust, communication channels get restricted, people hunker down, hold on, no longer are they innovative, and all kinds of things. There's 12 negative things that occur including a reduction in performance. A re, uh, that is, performance will go down. Well, that's a, that happens about 80 to 90% of the time. But that leaves 10 or 15% of the time when organizations flourish after downsizing. So the question over time became, well, what's the difference? That small number that gets a lot better, everybody else who doesn't. The answer to that question ended up being those organizations that flourished were virtuous in the way they downsized, in the way they handled their their personnel, their capital, both human capital, financial capital, social capital, and so on. That led me into this whole field called positive organizational scholarship or positive leadership. So that's one of the attributes. It's not dramatic. It's not rocket science. It just is unusual in terms of its practice, especially in trying difficult times. So that's one. Well, what is it they say? Genius is seeing what everybody else sees, but seeing it differently. I think that's what you've done. This is a marvelous book. It's a marvelous contribution. Professor, in 15 seconds, please tell our audience how they can learn more about you, read your blogs, uh, get your books. Well, thank you, first of all, Eldon. You're very kind to have me on. I am anything but a genius, but I've, uh, I've simply observed some things that I think are uh, very helpful. The best way to contact me probably is just by way of email, which is just my, uh, my name, K-I-M underscore Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, Kim underscore Cameron at U-M-I-C-H. That's University of Michigan umich.edu and i'm happy to respond to requests or to conversations or happy to all be, right uh, sir be I can we're out of time i want to thank you for sharing your work and experiences with us professor and thank all of you for listening in today wherever you are in the world until next time remember believing in yourself always matters Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.